Welcome to Agile Engineering. A podcast covering subjects like DevOps, Agile, Development, Cloud, and more. Featuring Liam Gulliver, Pete Gallagher, Louise Paling, Misha Bell, and Jonathan Relf. This is Episode 7. Welcome to the Agile Engineering Podcast, Episode number 7. Uh, in this episode, we're going to be discussing the Agile principles, and joining me, Liam Gulliver, as always, are my co-hosts, Jonathan Ralph. Hello. Louise Paling. Hello. Misha Bell. Howdy. And Pete Gallagher. Hi there. So, uh, let's get right into it. Um, I believe we went through the first four principles last time, so uh, Pete, do you want to lead us in with the fifth? Yes, so the fifth principle is build projects around motivated individuals. Give them the environment and support they need and trust them to get the job done. Is that more building a culture of trust across the business or within the teams or as individuals? Is it more about empowering teams to do the job that they're setting out to do? Of point them in a direction and away you go? Naturally, coming from a recruitment point of view, I'm looking at the motivated individuals part. Because I think that that's probably the trickiest bit to get right. How do you motivate the individual? How do you know that an individual is going to stay motivated? And how do you know when to build a project around them? Yeah, everybody's going to be motivated differently. So you need to have a good HR department or a good project lead or a good set of staff around you that know how to motivate each individual individually. Um, which is not going to work the same for everybody uh, and everybody is going to get demotivated at different points throughout a project you could have the perfect storm of everybody being demotivated at exactly the same time and so yeah it's going to take experience to manage that process yeah. which as Misha said it's going to be difficult. I think you're right everybody is motivated differently so building a team out of differently motivated people it is challenging so how could you go about that how would you be able to build an effective team where, frankly, one size doesn't fit all. Are we back to that Steve Jobs quote that was, it doesn't make sense to hire smart people and then tell them what to do. We hire smart people so they can tell us what to do. Kim Scott's book, uh, Radical Candor, is addressing that ability to try and motivate people in the right way. And I think that it's all very well having the right people, but if they're not being managed to motivate them, then you're not necessarily going to get the best out of people. So the environment which this principle is talking about is trying to say you need to treat the people right to help them get the job done the one thing that might be interesting to explore here is you know we are all five of us come together as a team of people for this podcast we are all motivated differently i know that both jonathan and i are motivated by cool stuff frankly um, and we're both very driven people and we can self-motivate very easily but I think it does vary from, from person to person because some people want to have their evenings to themselves, whereas I think for myself, I can't stop. It's a physical impossibility. Even when I take annual leave, I'm do I start projects, I do stuff. I can't physically stop myself from doing things or building something or exploring something new or, or learning something new, which can be both great as an individual but can be really awful as part of a team if you don't have 
the counterweight to that? Yeah, you need lots of different types of people on a team to succeed. There's so many different varieties of personality tests out there that we've probably all done at some point in time. The starter people, the completer finisher types, the the innovators, the detail-focused people. There's so many different ways of looking at the skills on a team, not just about what technical knowledge you have. I think it's really important to be careful how you measure motivation. There's been quite a few tweets recently about people who are complaining rightly about being judged for not programming while not at work or not having a a sideline or a side hustle and feeling as though they're being judged for that. They they make the point of doctors don't go home and start practicing medicine outside of work. So why should programmers be judged for that? I'm very similar to you, Liam and, and Jonathan. I find it difficult to switch off running your own business. I think you probably do have to be a little bit more motivated in that respect as well. One of the reasons why I hate going to the beach because I feel cut off from being able to do anything productive. Although you could argue doing nothing is still productive. On that point, I'd still have my phone with me. I've got the GitHub app installed so I can still deal with pull requests to stuff that I've created or whatever. I can't not do that or I take a tech book with me. But I guess just on your point in terms of that comparison between, say, doctors and programmers, one, there's a good reason doctors don't practice medicine outside of the office because I think it might be illegal. (laughs) And secondly... I've seen people turn down for jobs because they don't have a public GitHub. They're not contributing back to open source. It doesn't matter. It does not matter in the slightest. If you are technically good and you are technically able and you can show me that at an interview, I could not give a toss if you have the world's best LinkedIn, the world's best GitHub repo. I couldn't care less if you were, I don't know, if if you were the person that had invented Kubernetes. Don't care. Yeah, I think the difficulty here is that work-life balance is part of the environment to succeed in the sense that this idea that there's a 10x developer or a 24-7 assumption that you're going to continuously go above and beyond your teammates, you've got to be careful that celebrating success does not mean that you're trying to reward people for burning themselves out. And This statement is saying the support isn't necessarily about do more that there is a time and a place for recharging and and reflecting and looking at what you've learned. You may suit a certain amount of people, but chances are they're going to burn out or move on to other opportunities as a way of getting a break from the burnout. I, I really like looking at the principles and like looking at the specific words that they use, like we did on the last one. For me, I think that I'm also picking up on the word motivated, because as we've just been discussing, m- motivation can mean different things to different people but also there is a parallel to be drawn between motivation and discipline do you want motivated people or do you want disciplined people when motivation stops discipline will carry you through you could have the most motivated person in the world but if the thing that they're motivated by like jonathan or or liam are motivated by cool things if you get the cool things taken away are you no longer motivated but do you have the discipline to still carry on and to still deliver products Yeah, I mean, I guess that's more work ethic. Is that the phrase I'm looking for? I guess so. But I don't think that it's work ethic, really. I think it's just more like to be motivated. I see it as like a carrot and a stick. So, you know, you've got to give the person what they want and then they'll Mm. do the thing. With discipline, they'll do the thing because they have to do the thing. 
like me and exercise. <laughs> I'm never motivated to exercise, but I do it every morning <laughs> because I'm disciplined and I'll do it regardless of whether I want to or not. But I don't know. I don't really know what I'm getting at, so I'm going to stop now. <laughs> <laughs> I think that we have been spending a lot of time talking about the motivated bit of this, and I think that is probably the key point for me as well. But I think the rest of this principle is important as well, particularly around making sure everyone's got the right environment and support. So you can have people as yeah. motivated as you can have them, but if they don't really understand what it is they're doing or the ability to do it. So I think part of that support is making sure they understand what the end goal is, what they're aiming to do. And, and there's also talks about build projects around motivated individuals. We're not talking about your development team. We're actually talking about everybody who needs to be involved for the project to be successful. So that's outside yeah. of the immediate development team as well. I think that fleshes out just having the right oh. motivated developers there. You need all of the disciplines to make it work. That's a really good point, because what's going to motivate a developer? Cool, shiny stuff. What's going to motivate a salesperson? Not cool, shiny stuff. Or a product manager, they just want to ship things. They want people to be, you know, communicative. And yeah, really good point. I think you could read to the end of that sentence as well with the word trust. And I think trust is a, is a very good motivator. And lack yeah. of trust is a really good way to demotivate people. Yeah. Certainly when you read the Unicorn Project, um, then the, the trust element there, not being able to deploy your own code and, and having no relationship between what it is you're doing and the final product and not been involved in rollouts and not being told why you're doing things or not been invited to meetings because mm. you, you're just not a trusted part of the whole engine of production there i think it's really important that people do feel trusted and safe as yeah. well that safety is key to make people branch out try things without the worry that they're going to lose the job it's actually something i've been noticing people talk about uh, universal basic income as well and i know that seems like a tangent but it's not really one of the things that people are complaining about the possibility of universal basic income is people not being motivated to work because mm. Their motivation at the moment is to not lose their job, whereas your motivation should be to make good stuff yeah. uh, and not fear. Um, so all of that, I think, comes full circle. I'm wondering if the big thing about this, I mean, the hardest thing, at least, is looking at things like the 16 personalities and seeing how they all work yeah. together and fit together as a team. Are there mixes of that in people that make for... A recipe for disaster in that setup. But when you're working with people who are in development teams like that, they tend to all bear similar traits. They tend to have similar-ish personalities. Not exact. And I, I think there's a good chance that versus you folks here on the podcast that mine is probably quite different to, to a lot of yours. I know that I am an INTJ, for example. But I expect that within that, there's probably some similarity as well. I think for a lot of us that, that those tests are interesting as snapshots, but they don't define you forever. And, and in the same way that depending on the team dynamic of any project, you will find that strengths will come out based on the project what you're doing or the, t the people you're working with. So I think in some respects, it's not fixed in stone. You may have a preference, but you can also grow and change over time anyway. It's difficult to say that that is a useful exercise to do with the team to understand what may motivate them because that would be a very brittle way of managing them. And I think 
people change over time. If you've done pair programming between developers, you'll find that just working with a different person can unlock completely different conversations or insights. And it's not necessarily to say there's anything wrong with the previous pairing. It's just everybody's unique. I remember reading years ago that Lego held... I can't remember what it, exactly what they call the days, but basically they go, here's what we're working on. Do you want to switch teams? Do you want to move around? Do you want to come and work on this thing? I imagine some of those decisions uh, were because they'd work better with person A and B over person C and D, regardless of what the problem is. It's self-organizing teams around both not just the work, but maybe the people that you like and get on with as well. Mm. Yeah, definitely. So I've been thinking about the environment that people need. It's kind of been sparked by the conversation that we've just been having, like about, you know, personality types and and how people gel together and stuff. Like that's part of the environment that they need. But what about like a more practical thing of working from home? So like the Agile principles were, you know, created quite a long time ago now. And the sixth Agile principle is all centered around face to face interaction and communication but what about working from home how does that fit into things for those following along at home and don't have access to check this the sixth principle is the most efficient and effective method of conveying information to and within a development team is face-to-face conversation thank you louise i was going to make almost exactly the same point actually but i was going to go back to trust on that one Mm. and yeah working from home I think there's a lot of companies that have got the facility or did have the facility to let their employees work from home, but just didn't trust them to. Yeah. And I think it's, that's partly one of the reasons why that our numbers of uh, that thing that's happening at the moment haven't come down quite as much as they could have done is because of companies that won't let their employees work from home. Certainly the traffic numbers were very high, very early, way before they were unlocking things. Uh, where you could see that people were having to go back to work. Now, I do realise that some people cannot work from home very reliably, and so they will have been a percentage of that. But I think there is a great number of cars on the road during lockdown for people that... I mean, salespeople. A, a lot of the cars I saw were, although maybe I'm sort of putting them into one basket, salespeople-type cars, not Ford Focuses, not little Fiestas. These were big 4x4s or posh Jaguars and things like that. So I'm pretty sure there's a lot of people that just weren't trusted to work from home for one reason or another. It's interesting. That is interesting. I'm technically classed as a salesperson, although I really, you know, reel against it. But I have a Toyota Yaris. I've seen Richard's car. It is, it is not like a Range Rover Evoque or anything like that. <laughs> Yeah, it just no. goes to prove that you're not a salesperson, Misha. <laughs> I have nothing against salespeople, by the way. Just demonstrating a point about lack of trust and work of brain. That's all. <laughs> so how do we feel that's changed over lockdown then in the sense that Agile Principle 6 talks about face-to-face conversation? How easy has that been for you where you have tried that? I found it easier. I found people are a lot more accessible when yeah. everybody's in the same boat. Uh, There's always been a a thing where it's been potentially a good idea to go with lowest common denominator. If you've ever been the person on the other end of the phone trying to keep up with a room full of people, it it can be really difficult. Whereas if everybody's on the phone, it's different. And of course, (laughs) we've all seen the vast improvement in WebEx technology over the last few months. Uh, Mm -hmm. That has just got better and better. No matter what platform your company is using, 
it's come on leaps and bounds and it really has made it a lot easier to do yeah i would very much echo that like a thousand times i was the only remote worker in my company it's only a little company like 15 people but still and it was really isolating i would shout and shout and people would not pay any attention to me (laughs) they just had the oldest laptop open for me to be on i was ever present in the office but the laptop was that bad so anytime anybody spoke it sounded robotic to the point where i had to take my earphones out because it hurt that and not being able to go and get people's attention being the odd one out but then as soon as everybody had to work from home and it's the great leveler like you're right louise everybody is so much more communicative like they're on the same page and you adapt to like use the the technologies that we're already there but now are becoming a lot more use, used and it's made my life better quite considerably I'd, I'd actually say it's a bigger leveler than just people like yourself who were working remotely because although i have for a lot of my career agreed with this face-to-face is always best it's actually not necessarily a particularly accessible way of communicating with everybody there are people who can struggle with that a lot yep. and i think actually a lot of the technology has helped with this so there's a lot of like auto-captioning, for example, that might be there, or people who can now actually communicate better in text, where maybe if they're not great at hearing or English isn't their first language and text-based is better, that's much more available to them now. Yeah, and like as a like little kind of side note, and it might be like a psychological thing that nobody would really pay attention to, but like it can remove different like power dynamics sometimes, because like I imagine that you must, well... I, yeah, I don't know how to put this, but like, you know, you're quite short, Louise. And so like, you know, when you're around other people, <laughs> that height difference, even in and of itself, can subconsciously create different barriers, potentially. But like, if everybody sat down at a desk, you're just a floating head. You don't know now that I'm not actually 10 feet tall. I could be. Yeah. It would be interesting to see the stats from companies as to whether or not there have been more video calls than emails or rather if those numbers have changed in one direction or the other my feeling is that people are happier now to jump on a video call rather than sit there and draft out a big long email whereas that certainly when you're sitting working in an office that didn't happen as much because you'd have to organize for everybody to be at a particular point at a particular stage and I think now people are happy let's just jump on a call and we can have a quick chat and I think that speaks specifically to that sixth principle there in that this is still face-to-face. And what they're really trying to get at is that people shouldn't be emailing Slack and Teams. That's sort of an in-between, I think, because it's more instant, isn't it? More, you know, direct uh, messaging at that point. But certainly, even telephone calls are nowhere near as good as as a face-to-face because you can judge people's reactions to that. And we're very, you know, we need that. We're emotive people. Uh, we need to be able to see instant reaction to, to something they say. Perhaps you shut up because everybody looks shocked or you carry on on your role because everybody looks engaged. So, yeah, I think it's mega important. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, coming at it from a couple of angles here. So, you know, I lead, um, I've got a team where I work and yeah, we do face-to-face calls, but most of our communication is just through Slack a lot of the time or Teams or whatever, rather than being on a face-to-face call. And I'm finding it's just as effective. Now, me personally, for a job and a career that I've chosen that's really heavily people-based, I don't like people. Um, I just don't. 
Apart from us, you like us. Yeah. I'm not very good at the people thing. I can do it in a work context, but generally speaking, I'm fairly socially awkward. I get really bad anxiety uh, around like big groups of stuff. And so, you know, I decided with Misha that the best thing to do would be to start a meetup. But from a communication standpoint, if when we're face to face in an office setting, do it out of necessity because I, I like what I do for a living it's because I want to but I would get home and I would sit on the sofa and I'd fall asleep because I would have exhausted myself quite considerably throughout the day whereas right now the methods of communicating that we're going through I could have the hardest worst day and I still have energy at the end of the day to do all this extracurricular stuff that Jonathan and I tend to get ourselves into or doing the podcast like we've got now like today it has been a tough day but I'm sat here doing this thing now, talking about this thing that I love doing with you guys that I've gone really well with and that know me pretty well. And if we were doing this in person, it'd be fine. But I've got more energy because I'm right here right now and we're all in our various different homes up and down the country. Yeah, it lets you do things on your own terms. So it's amazing how actually in an open plan office, how much business is done verbally without being written down. And I think one thing that this has highlighted is that email was used as almost either a summary of a conversation or as a backstop in case somebody forgot. But in some respects, I've seen the quantity of email drop massively, you know, hugely, because people are now using Slack and video chats. And in, in some ways, I think we've gone through a bit of a role where video chat was taking longer. I think face-to-face conversations over video chat take longer because of having to decide who's talking and the, the, the classic, you mic's muted and all the other online conferencing puns it feels like people are actually identifying now that spending time typing especially it's not everyone's a fast typist either that sometimes just dropping on a video call quickly can actually unblock things far faster that said meetings are disruptive they are fixed points in time that everyone has to swarm around and drop mentally what they're doing and i'm finding a shift towards people doing asynchronous updates that people can dip into channels and read when they've got the time and the bandwidth so we are learning, it is changing, and in many ways that this pandemic, like Peter was saying, it's actually forced us to, to reevaluate how we work, and, and in that sense, it's a positive. I, and I think there's tools that really help to understand your way of working around that. So with Office 365, you now get an email every week about like your insights into your week and stuff. So I had mine on time yesterday, and it said to me that over the last four weeks, I have had 111 meetings all right, I'm unblocking other people, getting status updates, doing those sort of things. But focus time is so important to your productivity that without it, it, it will drop. And the one other thing that I kind of wanted to mention is, I'm pretty sure, I can't remember the name of the study that there was, but a big thing, and I think it's still a trend today, is like open plan offices, let's do that. Let's do all those things. But they're bad for people for various reasons, none of which I can remember right now. I've just tried Googling it and now I can't find it. You are 60% less efficient in an open plan office because your brain cannot help but listen out for your own name. It will do that without you even thinking, even if you're not tuned into somebody else's distracting comments about what their cat's been up to. And I think that's the one thing about this that's beneficial is I've been wanting walls and I've got my own walls because <laughs> I'm working from home. And so in some respects, it's been beneficial. I'm going to be quite defensive about wanting personal time that's not distracted in a big open plan because of that. Yeah, I was just going to say that kind of ties in quite like the open plan office and like the reduction in efficiency ties quite nicely into the seventh principle.
when working software is the primary measure of progress but all of your communication should be done face to face and we're saying that meetings are disruptive to focus time how do we reconcile that Misha, between this episode and the previous one, have you been practicing your segues into different points? No, because I haven't. You've been doing it's a really talent. Just... <laughs> <laughs> I guess that's where you can see that in your velocity, in the progress through your sprints. If you've got 40 hours of work for one person in a sprint and it should take a week, that's probably overloading them for in this example, but it's easier maths and they aren't getting through that in their allotted time, then right there is a metric, or a marker at least, to show that they're not being as productive as they could be. And you can probably use that information to start prompting questions, going, okay, so why has that been a thing? Or it should come up at stand-ups, or even throughout the day, saying, look, I'm blocked because of this, there's this going on, there's all these distractions or whatever, but that is easier said than done, right? I've now got all the questions on this topic. I'm not involved in a company like you are. I didn't notice any difference as far as workload was concerned because I had companies that went offline, but at the same time, I had others that came online. For you that are working on a single project where you've got sprints and things like that, at the start of lockdown, did you have to to change how that was all going to work when people were furloughed? Did you take that into account? Or did you say, go home and work in exactly the same way as you always have with the exact same amount of efficiency? Or did you have to take that into account and change sprint lengths and key dates and things like that? Did any of us really know how we were going to end up working from home? I think we've been learning as we've been going. If we had the answers when we went into lockdown, we would have probably been more efficient. There was a learning curve. There was time to adjust to the pandemic than the lockdown and how we even got toilet roll. And so in (laughs) in many respects, I don't think any company had necessarily the right answers going into that. I didn't mean actually the planning. I meant when it happened and you're already in the middle of the sprint. You've been very fortuitous if you're in between sprints at that point. Did, however, the project manager, project leads at that point go, right, that date is going to have to get pushed no matter what we do because everybody is going to have to transition to a different way of working. We can't expect the same estimates to work on all of that burn down and things like that. It just doesn't work that way. And, And are you a bad company if you didn't do that? If you then expected your staff to then go home and work with exactly the same efficiency as they were able to before, even taking everything into account about having to work from home, just the fact that people are going through this big event, you know, it's once in a lifetime event, once in a generation event, people cannot maintain concentration under those circumstances. So their their speed of work is definitely going to be affected. But how do you stop people from becoming demotivated because of that as well? So all the way back there to the fifth one. Again, that's a question to those people that are working in those environments? I guess, uh, from my point of view, we didn't really change anything. We didn't change dates, we didn't change sprints. In terms of the team that I have, the team that I work in, we had fairly flexible working anyway. People would work from home. I'd work from home at least once or twice a week anyway, because I live an hour away from our office. The whole team had that capability, so it didn't really change. And I was already doing that for the first couple of weeks ahead of lockdown anyway, as I was having to self-isolate. And yeah, it's not really changed anything. The only the only sort of bump in the road is more around the whole team adjusting to that we are all remote and getting used to all our ceremonies are now all going to be on calls or it's going to have to have a new way of pair programming or 
interacting with clients or customers or stakeholders or, or whatever but it, it's found a new normal relatively quickly and i think in my opinion at least we're doing better now than we were when we were all together in an office that was open plan this reminds me of tom hoyland's talk about making things visible because if working software is the most important thing that the team does if we don't account for all the other things that distract us from that mission if you're not making it visible that you've been dragged into 110 meetings then nobody knows that that's actually slowing you down from the most important thing which is working software which is what principle seven is trying to remind us to challenge all the other stuff that might creep into your working day I guess I'm the last one who's been working in that environment. So for my team, uh, one of the development teams was carry on with what you're working on, fully understanding that even just taking laptops home, setting things up at home, working that out was likely to change the end result. But also working in an IT department where we're responsible for a a large company that isn't... uh, uh, IT focused isn't set up to be able to work from home then uh, a good chunk like over half the department was focused on how do we mobilize this entire company uh, that was just immediately stop what you're doing this is now the entire focus of what we're working on right now nothing is more important than making sure people don't have to come into the office but agile is flexible so in many ways that the whole point of this is that we adapt to challenges as they come in so I think yeah Pete we we likely did go back and say, yeah. we're not going to f- meet this deadline, but that's the way we roll with agile engineering. Yeah, well, agile processes, you know, promote sustainable development. <laughs> See where I'm going with this. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, no, I just found it quite interesting. It says the eighth principle is agile processes promote sustainable development. The sponsors, developers and users should be able to maintain a constant pace indefinitely, which I think does tie in really nicely with what Pete was saying about the pandemic having to shift people out of the environment that you've created and you have to increase the support that you give them in different ways in ways that people have never had to do before so it really kind of ties all of the different points together i think yeah discuss (laughs) one thing that's really helped with this transformation that has been forced upon people more than anything else and even before now one of the reasons that i got into more of a, a devops arena is around cultural transformation and making things better faster harder you know is the cloud being able to provide everything from a development point of view as code meaning that we can peer review every last little thing set up your infrastructure as code do your observability as code do everything as code treat it with the same scrutiny as product code it ends up paying off in dividends in terms of your throughput what you're putting through your constraint covid has introduced a constraint in the fact that teams are more distributed but by having that common understanding and common approach through that everything as code movement does in my opinion make things a lot simpler down at at that level you know and it could be from your site reliability engineers through to your cloud systems engineers or your server side front end there's enough there that you can follow a similar set of practices and principles that everybody will know regardless of your code base to help really drive efficiency through. I'm not going to lie, this is my favourite Agile principle, if I'm allowed one. 
I have issues with number six because they talk about face-to-face being efficient and I disagree. But this one, the bit that I love most is the end where it says users should be able to maintain a constant pace indefinitely. It's the bit about reminding yourself that yes, as a team, we can swarm around deadlines if they are immovable and you don't like the sound of them wishing past you. I think you need to make sure that you're constantly taking the temperature of teams to make sure that the current workload is maintainable without them burning out. And I think that's why I love this one so much because whilst the rest of it's all about get the value out to the customer, do more, more efficiently, this one reminds us to go back to the team as part of retros and actually say, look, how are you feeling? And actually getting them to score themselves on It doesn't matter what kind of arbitrary scale it is, but just ask them how they're doing because that maintainable pace is the only way your team is going to consistently get to a velocity that actually means something to planning. My question was going to be on that exact point, actually, but more towards small companies, small businesses who have very lumpy uh, and often, you know, multiple projects will appear at the same time and you don't have a consistent pace. You have a consistent pace perhaps within a tight timescale, but often you'll have companies that will come up to a consultancy like mine and it's like buses and I can have three projects running all at the same time and I don't have a consistent pace at all Uh, and I don't measure that pace. It's literally just when do you need it and if they need it before the person that I'm already working for, then they'll get bumped a little bit, but the other person will never know that. I'm just trying to manage the client is all you're doing at that stage. But I mean, I'm a one-person band, but I think 15 to 20 people even with a dev team of five or something must find it difficult to maintain a, a pace that works across all different sorts of projects. And every single project is going to be different. All the deadlines are always different. So does that happen in big companies as well? And and is that just down to the, the project leads and the, the management to, to smooth that out for everybody underneath? I think you get it in peaks and troughs really wherever you go. It could be fine one minute where you get that consistent throughput, uh, especially if you're working on a larger project, not just in a larger company, or it could be, okay, well, that's going to trail off and then somebody has this great big new idea, let's spend two weeks building it and then it, that trails off again or, or whatever. But I, I mean, the point that I wanted to make was I look at it as a consistent pace per sprint, not generally across the year and that sort of thing. You know, you make sure that they're consistent over that 10 or, or however many day period to keep that thing moving because at the end, you, in theory, are shipping a working product increment. And you want to continue that velocity throughout. That reminds me of a great story of a company that I've previously worked at where a, a developer couldn't get his head around the fact that Agile meant that we would be checking in on on his progress regularly and he wasn't going to be able to sit and read BBC News until the end of the third month when he could deliver it all in a mad panic in the last week. And I think consistent pace in that respect, you're right, Liam, is more about just trying to make sure that everyone's aware that you don't just leave everything to the last minute and and do panic-driven development <laughs> just in time that's a that's a pleasant way of putting it um but yeah i think that's what that my other half operates <laughs> it's 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 kind of i think you you are the scheduler of your own work pete in that sense being a, a smaller instance so you've got to be able to identify what's the prioritization that's appropriate yes it does happen on larger scale absolutely I think um, it will be fairly easy for us to continue talking about these principles for quite a long time to even go into a third part around agile principles. So I think at this point, it'd be good to take a look at 
uh, what our key takeaways are for points five, six, seven, and the little bit of eight that we have talked around. Pete, let's start with you. Stealing a little bit of Misha's thunder, I think, identifying the words is always important to me in there. And motivation and trust from five, I found that certainly everybody else need to latch onto those as well. And then, you know, efficiency of uh, the conveying of information from six is really, really important. I think we've all seen a big change in that since COVID and that we're having to work differently. So we've all found different ways of, of talking to each other. And I think it's improved processes. The seventh one, I, I find that difficult. If you're not making working software, then what are you doing? Uh, surely you ought to be producing that no matter what you're doing. So I don't find much in that one, but certainly in eight, that indefinite pace, I think Liam's right to call out that it's per sprint or per feature or whatever you, you classify as between two points rather than across an entire product or across an entire year. It's important to, to work with what you're doing at that moment in time rather than trying to make something that fits all and that fits everything all of those principles nothing will fit everybody all at the same time you need to spend a bit of time organizing yourself in a way that works for you yeah i agree i personally think that the agile principles again can be not only applied to like software development but if you just swap out different words they can also be applied to majority of other industries definitely recruitment i do think that the agile principles may need to be updated to accommodate for the changes in technology and people situations and the pandemic i think at the core they're kind of common sense if you give people the kind of environment that they like the support that they need monitor their progress in a fair way I think that you'll have a great team and I do think that those processes would ultimately deliver an efficient and cohesive and happy team I think these four have been the most relevant to our current changing work situation and certainly five and six talking about how we work together reminds us that this can be applied to remote working as well I don't agree with as I've already said with Six's idea that face-to-face is always the most efficient touching on Pete's point that I think almost principle seven about working software being the primary measure feels like a repeat of the first principle which was that the highest priority is to satisfy the customer through early and continuous delivery of valuable software unless they're trying to call out the fact that metrics are important realistically that I think that's a duplication and then as I've already said number eight is my favorite just because it's a reminder that actually we need to make sure we look after the team to make sure that this is continuously possible to develop the software at the rate that we can maintain so yeah so I think certainly three of the four I think are still massively useful I think my takeaways from today, I've got three. I think the first one is something we keep coming back to in various uh, podcast wrap-ups, which is communication is incredibly important. You can't communicate enough. Do it more than you think you need to and you still haven't done it enough. And then I think the thing that's run through this for me is how important it is to look after the people. The people are the things, the people are the things, the people are the people who get the work done. The work does not get done without the people. We need to make sure that the people are doing well and the third takeaway so far from this evening is that I need to put some WD-40 on my chair. <laughs> so I apologise for all the squeaks. Hopefully Jonathan can work his magic in the edit. Build it into the next sprint. <laughs> I know that squeak well because I own the same chair and I move slightly and there is all of the noise. My my main takeaways really are these principles really need updating, not just for the present day, 
in terms of what's going on with, with the pandemic, but even with technology changes, you know, teleconferencing has come on a long way since these were originally written. It makes talking face-to-face so much easier. The fact that this evening, as part of our recording this particular session, we've just put together a Google Meet and we're there we can all see each other we're recording all individually it does make a difference but you're right in terms of things like working software being the primary measure of progress that realistically should be the only measure of progress in, in my opinion it is based on your output the road to how you get there should not matter but as long as you're hitting your deliverables at the time you're meant to be hitting them or even renegotiating those deliverables with key stakeholders when there's problems and so on. As long as there's something tangible out of the end of it, it shouldn't matter. So uh, thank you very much for listening to the Agile Engineering Podcast. Uh, You can let us know your thoughts on these particular principles or suggest topics for discussion by getting in touch with us on Twitter on at Agile Eng Podcast. Or you can go to our website, agileengineeringpodcast.com, or contribute directly on our GitHub repo at github.com forward slash agileengineeringpodcasts. Uh, if you would like to support our podcast going forward, you can now contribute to us on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash agileengineering. Thank you.